I'm entitling this The Joshua Secret today. Joshua is a, a special character in the Bible for me as an individual. Uh, for you, you got to figure out what things God talks to you about in your life. Do you understand? But in my life, like for example, Pastor Nancy, God has used the character of Solomon to, to influence her and others. I'm not just saying that, but she said that publicly, how God has talked to her about her life is similar to Solomon's life. And so she studies that and she, and she learns and it provides her a foundation of to some parallels that she can see in scripture and what to release her faith for. Of course, there's much that has to be individually told by the Holy Ghost. But sometimes God will, will, will have your heart attached to a character in the Bible. And there's probably a reason for that because he wants you to see some things, some parallels that they went through that you're going to experience as well in a good way. And sometimes it can be in a, you know, he can prepare you for trouble or persecution, but mostly it's he's encouraging you through these words. Well, there's two, there's, there's others, but there's two main characters God has always used with me, and that is Joshua and David. He's always talked to me parallels about Joshua's life. He's always talked to me parallels about David's life. And uh, for me, I, I pay attention to that because not all, everything, look, he's talked a lot about Elisha recently in this season that we've been through because of the stages of Elisha's journey. And he's talked with me about Moses and different things about him and about, you know, about Elijah and, and Elisha, both of them. But the two main ones for me are Joshua and David. And, and just this, this is just kind of like as an introduction, but one of the first things he said to me about Joshua and the way I know is the day the mantle came when the roof disappeared and doctor had the vision yeah. that same day in the afternoon when I was praying because I was so overwhelmed by that experience. And he gave me that story. He said, open my word. And he talked to me about Joshua when Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, walked at the captain of the host of the army of the Lord, walked up to him with a drawn sword. And he talked to me about that. And basically that anointing that came on him was for war. And he said, there is going to be a lot of opposition against you. And he said, but there's an anointing on you for war. In other words, an aggression, and that's part of that apostolic office, and you're going to stand against things, but they will fall before you. And, and, and he used from the very inception of the mantle coming, he used Joshua. And of course, what he said, the main thing was, I didn't pick Joshua because he was something. He said, I said, I'm not for you or your enemy. I'm for God. Whoever is in the plan of God, that's who I'm going to support. Because sometimes we'll start to take sides and think that we're better than this. Or and we don't ever think that way. The only reason God ever sees fit to use any of us is because we're in agreement with his plan. It's not because we're so great. And so he kept me humble on that very first day by teaching me. But he used Joshua on the very first day the mantle came. Praise God. And uh, uh, when, when, when I, another thing is Joshua's conquest of the land, there was much taking of the land. And the Lord has always brought a parallel to me with Africa and with different places that we're going, including Canada, Philippines, and other places. He has said, the Caribbean, he has said, you're taking land. And he's always used that Joshua conquest parallel with the apostolic office. Right. Right. He's not really used David as much with the apostolic office, but he has with Joshua as a parallel. And so I'm just giving you a short list here. There's others. But um, another one is, which I'm going to preach a little bit about today, is he gave me, he came, in, he came in the room. I was struggling and, you know, people had hurt me and I was going through a very difficult time back some time ago, a uh, number before COVID. And he walked in the room. I didn't see him, but I'm telling you, I know exactly where he was standing. His presence came in. I fell to the floor and he started speaking to me. And he gave me five promises from the book of Joshua chapter 1. And one of them is that no man will stand before you all the days of your life. 
like he told Dr. Sumrall. He used Joshua and that parallel when he walked in the room and talked to me. We'll share a little bit about more of that in a second. Another one, another, another thing that's been big in me all my life, even when I went into the jungles at, at when I was 19 years old and I was in the jungles there, all my life he's had big in me about the spirit of faith and about Caleb and Joshua having a different spirit. Because that's what the Bible says, that they had a different spirit than all the other people, that spirit of faith caused them to move forward instead of the other 10 that went backward. And they're the only two other than Moses that survived the 40 years in the wilderness. Everybody else that went into the land were 20 year olds and under. Think about that. A whole army of teenagers. People don't realize that. When they went and took that land, when the walls fell down, the entire army were children and teenagers. Some of them were 20, but everybody above 20 smoked. I don't mean smoked. I mean, God smoked them in the wilderness. Deep fried chicken. Their bones rotted in that sand because they refused to have faith. And you're going to rot if you don't have faith. You're not going to go forward if you don't have faith. God's way in old and new is the spirit of faith. This is the word of faith that is nigh thee in your heart and in your mouth. How do you become saved? Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. How do you get healed? Heart and mouth. Everything with God is the heart and mouth faith. Woo! People don't realize that. It was a youth group. God said that to me a while ago. I never thought about it. I'm always thinking like 40s, 50s, you know. That's what I think when I think about the walls. They're like, some of them 60, and they're like, you know, some of them are like 30, and they're business people. And it's a youth group. The youth group was around the wall, shouting in victory. And only three human beings alive, only three, were not in the youth group. Caleb was 80. Five years later, when he took the mountain, he was 85. But when they had that wall fall, he was 80. 80 and a bunch of teenagers. They would have looked up to him like, wow, that's our example. And then five years later, he's running up a hill saying, give me the mountain. And he's killing 10 foot tall giants with his 85 year old hand. No cane. No, his eyes, the Bible says, were clear. No dimness, no cataracts. Oh, pastor, I just got cataracts. Well, you don't have the spirit of faith. You need to get healed. No cataracts, no arthritis. You can't run if you've got arthritis. No fear, no blood disease, no heart, no cripple. He wasn't in an old age home. At 85, with now the oldest would have been 25. But when they took that wall, I can just see it. The teenagers are, my God, are we sure we're doing this? And there's the 80-year-old saying, shut up. I've been waiting a long time. You're not ruining it. You keep your mouth shut. If you can't speak faith, be quiet. Listen, God may not kill you. I'll kill you myself. I'm not going any longer in that ridiculous wilderness anymore. You're going to go in with me whether you like it or not. There's the 80-year-old. There's the, there's the father figure. Moses died. At the wall, Moses dead already. So there's early two people, Joshua and Moses. We know Moses' age because the Bible says it doesn't say Joshua's age, but most theologians say that he was about 20 years younger than Caleb. So he was about, well, he was about, uh, he was about 60. So when he went into the wilderness, he was about 20, about that. But we know the Bible tells us Caleb's age was 40. 
when he went in, 80 when the wall fell, 85 when he took Hebron. But now we see we got teenagers and we got a 60-year-old and an 80-year-old and they're leading the troops. Do you realize that that meant the priests that were carrying, they were, they were going before? Do you understand when that happened? They were carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant. They were teenagers. Everybody was 20 and younger. We've got to start releasing our faith for our teenagers. Why should the devil have them? Why should, why should the music take them and the movies take them? There was a whole nation of teenagers and only two old fogies. And they weren't fogies, they were warriors. And that's not my sermon, but let's move on. He's always dealt with me the spirit of faith. And that comes from Joshua and Caleb. And, and, he's, and uh, number five, he's, he's always, he's, that message of faith that Dad Hagen brought, you'll find that in Joshua. Because when Jesus gave him the strategy for the wall, he said, I have. I have given you the mighty men. And there were giants in that place. And, and, and all I have done. In other words, he was, he was calling things that be not as though they already were. Jesus taught Joshua faith as the way Dad Hagen taught it to us. Call those things that be not. Thank me for something before you see it. Thank me for something before you feel it. Shout the shout of victory when it looks impossible. And angels will get to working for you. So, and that's another thing that's been very close to me about the Joshua revelation. You don't see that as much with David, although David was obviously a man of faith. But you see faith taught in the life of Joshua from Jesus directly. So there's some parallels, uh, praise God. And also uh, a sixth thing uh, that God has always done, there's others, but I'm not telling all that, but uh, just to give you an idea why Joshua is important, why God's used him a lot in my life, is there was a submission. David couldn't really, David did submit, but his leader was an idiot. Saul tried to kill him and then went into witchcraft and died. Not much of somebody to look to, but Moses was a great and holy man of God. And other than a little, mis- a little mistake, which God thought was a big mistake because of its symbolic value, he never went in. But Moses, overall, he wasn't like Saul. He was God's man. And there was a submission from Joshua under Moses. And, God, and he always said, God said, I'm going to read it to you in a second, don't turn from what Moses taught you. And there's always been something big. God's always used this from the time I was a teenager. I'm going to give you Moseses. You make sure you submit to them. You make sure you don't get arrogant and cocky and think because you can preach a little bit that you're going to get out on your own. No, the reason Joshua succeeded is because he kept the blueprint of his spiritual father. So the concept of fatherhood, spiritual fatherhood has always resided big in me. And I live it with Pastor Nancy because of Joshua and how he acted. I'm just giving you a little bit of, a, of an overview because Joshua is an important character. But the seventh and the last thing, which is what I want to preach about today, is the revelation of meditation. The secret of Joshua's success was meditation and not with the pretzel legs. Because people today think meditation is the downward dog. Now, I was shocked, but I had to cast the devil out of Oliver. Oliver did yoga in front of me. My French bulldog did the downward dog. Now I know where they got the name from. 
You know what I'm talking about, Cole? When he, when, he, when he stretches after he sleeps, he does the pose and it's the exact downward dog. And I thought, my God, that's where they got it from. Somebody had a dog. I said, devil, come out of him in Jesus' name. <laughs> Just kidding. Some of you think I'm crazy. Maybe I am. But, but it was such a revelation to me that they named it the downward dog after a dog. Because that's what the dog does. I said, you're not, there's no yoga in this household. Oliver, I said, repent. If you do yoga, you better quit it. If you're spiritual, the Holy Ghost will check you. Problem is a lot of Christians aren't spiritual. They come to church, but that don't make you spiritual because you come to church. That makes you faithful. You can be faithful and not spiritual. You can be faithful and go out and commit a whole bunch of sins this week. And come back to church next week. The Catholics do that all the time. Just because you come, don't make you spiritual. What you do outside of your church attendance makes you spiritual or not spiritual. Your time with God. Your time meditating on the word. Your time knowing God and the voice of the spirit inside you will determine whether you're a spiritual person. Or not. And if you're doing things that he does not like, and I can prove it to you, it's not my sermon today, but I can give you a whole sermon why yoga is demonic. I didn't say Pilates is. I didn't say exercises. I didn't say all of it is. But the, there is a demon spirit attached to yoga. And what you don't realize is it started in, in the Far East. And it started in temples with priests. And they would do worship practices to their demon. What they called idols or ancestors. But what we know are demons. And those poses and those things came out of that worship to demonic power. And that East has come into the West. And people just gobble it up because they've got cool looking leotards on uh oh, come on, Pastor. No, I'm serious. Well, I need to do yoga because I like to wear yoga pants. Well, I wear yoga pants, but I don't do yoga. Praise God. I'm messing with you. I'm messing with you. But no, but people have to be told because some people just don't know. I talked to somebody in our congregation three years ago. They've been doing yoga every day for years and they had no idea. I said, if you were listening to the Holy Ghost, he'd tell you. But you obviously you're not. So my job is to help you. I don't judge you for not. You're growing. And you're going to get there. So don't feel bad or guilty. But I'm telling you as a pastor, since you're not picking it up, don't touch anything from the Far East in meditation. Don't touch it. Just like you don't touch witchcraft. You don't touch, you don't go to a, a seance. Just like you don't go to, to people with tarot cards and, and the rocks and the bones and this. You don't touch that. We've got the Holy Ghost. We don't need that. You don't touch anything from the Far East. Nothing. There's devils attached to all of it. Even certain martial arts, there's devils attached to. Not all, but some, there are, because they, there's worship stuff out of Thailand and different things. You got to be very careful. And you got to be spiritual because there's a spiritual realm that's just as real as this realm. Just because you can't see it don't mean it's real. Can you see Pastor Nancy right now? Is she real? Right. There is a spiritual realm you can't see, but it is real. Anyway, so uh, moving right along. So there are some... There's some things about Joshua that have been very close to my heart all my life and David as well. And so Joshua is a big, a big person in my life. I'm going to meet him. He's going to be there waiting for me. I already told Jesus, you better make sure he's there. I want some of the grannies and everyone to be there too. But I want Joshua and I want, I want Amy Simple there. And I want, I want people that we have, God has used in our life. Uh, I don't want to have to go look for them. I want them waiting on me. But we're going to go in the rapture, so I don't know how that's going to work because they're going to be in the cloud somewhere and I'm going to have to find them. Get out of my way, Greg. I've got to go talk to Smith Wigglesworth. (laughs) 
Leave Amy Simple for McPherson alone, Mary Chris. It's my turn. I'll just push her out the way. Praise God. The point is, is that these men have had impact. Now, one of the, the seventh area there that I mentioned is his revelation and meditation. That's how I got off with the word meditation. (laughs) Because meditation is not what the world calls meditation. You're not doing some weird thing. You, meditation simply means to mutter. It means to repeat under your breath. It means to think upon. It means to consider. Meditate is really what a cow does. Not to be vulgar, but a cow does not have four stomachs like everybody says it does. You just don't know what, you haven't read anything about a cow. Okay, I used to milk cows. When I was in Bible school, that I, I did a job to catch chickens and at one point to milk cows. Dear sweet Jesus, don't ever milk a cow. It hurts your hand. Those, really hard, those beasts are hard to milk. And those chickens are fast. I had to wait till they fell asleep and then I'd grab them in Jesus' name. I've had a lot of jobs. <laughs> I've had a lot of jobs for bad pay just so I could preach. You better like me. Past appreciation's coming up. You better picture me buying, doing the chickens. And by the way, they stink. Chickens reek nastiness. And I walked into that big warehouse and the boss man was there. I was in Bible school. I, I needed money to pay my rent because my millionaire father said, you have to learn the value of money. I'm not giving everything to you. Thanks a lot, dad. Uh, and of course, I hadn't met my wife yet, so I didn't know what faith was. Thanks a lot, Jennifer, for delaying your arrival into my life. See, I'll blame everybody, praise God. My pastor never taught it to me, so I didn't know. So I had to, you know, faith does whatever it takes. That's fine. And, and I'm looking, I'm surveying, and it's like dim, very dim yellow lights. I had to arrive at midnight because they're all sleeping. And there's dim yellow lights. And I'm talking as far as the eye can see. There are sleeping chickens. And it stank. And he gave me some gloves. And he says, I'm going to demonstrate. Pay attention. I'm showing you once. I said, yes, sir. And he, so he grabs underneath the sleeping chicken. He feels for their legs and he whoop, goes real fast. The faster you go, they don't wake up. If you go too slow, they'll wake up and start biting you with their beaks. Whoa, real quick, one action. And he's holding it upside down and it's still snoring. It's sleeping. And he goes and he puts it in the crate real gentle. And he says, now you do it. I said, what? I'm not doing this. He goes, you want to get paid? I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to pay rent if I don't do the chickens. So I went in the first one, I did it too slow, and he woke up, bit me, scratched me. The guy grabbed him, slammed him in the thing, and said, that's not what I said. <laughs> he did it again, and I started, I got so good, by 6 a.m., I did it for six hours. By 6 a.m., I could do them with both hands. Whoop, whoop, and he said, my God, you're good. I'm going to hire you full time. I said, no, you're not. This is the only time I'm ever doing this job. I want my money now. I'm not leaving till you pay me cash, because I ain't never seeing you again. <laughs> I've done just, how did I get on that? <laughs> Jennifer, you better stop pulling on me, honey. Oh my God. Meditating on the word. I don't know how that happened, but anyway. What? Yeah. Thank you. It doesn't have four stomachs. It has one stomach with four compartments. It swallows it. It brings it back up. It chews it. It goes to the second. Brings it back up. Chews it. Goes to the third. Brings it back up. Chews it. Goes to the fourth. And then the milk goes to the udder. And the other stuff goes to the tail area. That's all we have to say. But why does it eat it four times? And you think it's gross, but to the cow, 
uh, they like it. It tastes better every time. They are extracting nutrients. They are extracting, the enzymes are breaking down and they are, and every stomach has different kinds of juices. We only have one, but they have four. But what that is, that is an animal realm example of meditation. It is you take the word and you're not going to get the fullness of the complexity of the revelation of that word on one digestion. So you have to think about it. As you're going about your day, you're thinking about it. You're talking to yourself about it. You're muttering. That's what it means to murmur or to mutter. You are just, you're talking to God yourself. You're just thinking about it. You're meditating on it. And as you're doing that, it goes down again. Then later on, you start thinking about it again. It comes back up again because you're extracting revelation knowledge. And that's what, now this is a great thing that Joshua has brought the body of Christ. There's other verses, but God's used this big for me. So can I tell you about a couple animals since we're in a bit of a strange mood today? We've talked about Far East. We've talked about Oliver having devils. We've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about sleeping chickens. You can't get bored in this church. Put that first picture up, please. Now, what is that beautiful little sweet creature called? That is called an Arctic tern, T-E-R-N. And that lives in the Arctic. That's why it's called a tern. And put the next picture up, and this is the Arctic tern flying. Now, what you don't know about the Arctic tern is it's the only bird in the world that flies 15,000 kilometers without stopping. It goes from Arctic, and it flies every year to the Antarctic. Why there's snow in both, I do not understand the point. He didn't fly to Bahamas, he flew to the Antarctic. He's, he didn't like the ice up there, he thought the ice was better down there. I have no clue why, maybe there's a reason, I didn't read that far, I'm not that interested. All I know is that every year that little buddy flies from the Arctic to the Antarctic, which is 15,000 kilometers one way. He does not stop flapping his wings the entire time. You say, well, how does he eat? God has allowed that bird a unique thing. It's the only bird on the planet other than a hummingbird that can hover. And it goes over the water and it hovers and, when the, and then it will dive down and get the fish, come back up and keep hovering and eat it and then keep flying. And then hover and dive and eat, get the fish, come up, hover while he eats it and then keeps flying. And he does that for 15,000 kilometers straight. Now, look at this next one. This, I'm only doing two, so don't worry. It's not a nature lesson. This one, because I could see Taylor was getting nervous. This one is not National Geographic Channel. This one is a weird name. It's called a bar-tailed godwit. G-O-D-W-I-T. A god-tailed, sorry, a bar-tailed godwit. And this baby flies. I can't remember where he flies from. That's where, that's the other one here. Uh, now you see, you got me all flustered, Brother Taylor. You see, if you didn't fluster me, brother, things would work out better. I got it written down here. Yes, he flies from Alaska. Go to the next one. The flying, the flying, uh, that, that's the, that's the bar-tailed godwit. Its tail looks like a bar. So, uh, this little bird flies from Alaska to Tasmania. Do you know where that is? Tasmania is underneath Australia. It's a 13,400 kilometer trip. He does it twice, once down, once back, every year. Uh, not as far as the Arctic turn, but what's unique about this little guy is he never stops for food. Wow. He never stops for water. He flies 13,400 kilometers in a direct line, 
and he does it without stopping. It's the only animal on the planet that can fly that far without water or food. Amazing how God made these little creatures. Now, that's amazing in and of itself, but what is even more amazing? How did that bird, who does not have global positioning system, nobody taught him, he never went to school. How did he know to go from Alaska to Tasmania? How did he know to do that? And how did he know the way? Some of you can't even make it. <laughs> Downtown Toronto without getting lost. Somebody came to visit me. They don't come to our church. They're a family member recently. I gave them the address. They put it into their GPS. And, and they were late, and I'm thinking, where are they? Because the GPS said what time they're coming. I know there's no traffic. I texted him, I said, where are you? He goes, well, I took three wrong turns. I thought, how do you take a wrong turn when you have GPS? He was half an hour late because he took three wrong turns to get to Aaron with a GPS, I might add. How does the bar-tailed God would know without GPS? Do you know what it's called? Instinct. God put an instinct. It's divine. Med uh, scientists cannot figure it out. You know why they can't figure it out? Because it's a God quality. And they don't believe in God. N scientists today cannot understand how the whales migrate. How the birds fly. Who taught them? How do they know? They've got a built-in homing. They don't understand it. Because God put an instinct inside a creature to go to a place without a map directions and to know when to go and when to come back and they never get lost. And if this little guy gets lost, he'll die because he's going without food or water. He's relying on his instinct. And I want, you, I want to tell you something. If God gives an instinct to a creature of lesser value than an internal human with a spirit, God has given an instinct to you. Now, let me tell you what that instinct is. This was great revelation to me. God gave an instinct to Adam and Eve. It's a divine instinct. That instinct meant they automatically knew how to please him. They automatically loved him. Nobody had to teach them to love God. Nobody had to tell them, have your devotions. Nobody had to tell them, uh, you need to love God. Uh, he's going to come down and he wants to walk with you. You should go walk with him. Nobody had to tell them that. There was a divine instinct inside their spirit where they loved God, they knew God, they wanted God, they wanted to please God, they wanted to spend time with God, they wanted to follow his instructions, they wanted to name the animals because he told them to, they wanted to have dominion because he gave it to them. God put something in an animal, how much more a human, so that the animal would know what to do. Well, the man knew what to do. When it came to his relationship with God, when it came to his job, which was running that garden. Now, the snake shows up, Satan in the form of a snake shows up to deceive and lies and says God is wrong. And God knows that, see, he tried to offer them something. He tried to offer Eve something she already had. If you do this, God knows you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. You'll be a God. He told her, you'll be a God. Problem is she was already a God, a little G. So he'll always try to offer you something greater than what God has offered. If you sleep around, it's okay. Because this is what you're going to get. If you do this underhanded business deal, it's okay. Because you, you know, you're, you're a powerful person. It doesn't matter 
about those rules. They don't apply to you. He'll always offer you something that God says no and try to make it seem like it's going to be better for you. Now listen to me. I'm trying to help you. Are you listening? When even Adam said yes to that deception and they partook and they lost the glory of God. By the way, they weren't naked. The way people, you know, you see it in the children's Bible and Eve's hair is down to her waist and she's standing behind a bush. That's not how it was. I'm sorry to tell you that's not how it was. I'm trying to help you. I know some of you. <laughs> Where does Oliver get his clothes? Now, I do dress him up. So the wrong answer is Amazon. Okay. But where does Oliver get his clothes? Not what I bought him. The fur comes from within and grows out. He produces his own clothes. Animals produce their own clothes. The feathers come from within. As they're being formed in the egg or the womb, it comes from within. So Adam and Eve, they weren't, they weren't naked the way you think they are, the way we are today. They were clothed but with glory, because as an animal from within comes fur. So the glory out of their spirit man emanated out of their pores and the glory of God covered them as clothing. The right way to picture it would be almost like a mist or a cloud around them instead of a bush. We should rewrite the children's Bible, brother, because the glory of God was around them when they sinned and God's presence and their spirit died unto God. The next one that got born again was Jesus. The first human being that ever from that moment Adam and Eve broke that their spirit died in its connection to God. And the only person since then whose spirit was alive unto God was Jesus and us. And the 12 disciples who he breathed on, they were the next human beings. With a spirit becomes alive unto God a second time. Why a second time? Because as a child, before you're responsible for, for the sin nature, you, the Bible says you're alive unto God when you're a child. But then when sin takes hold, when you understand what's going on, the age of accountability, your connection with God dies, sin blocks it. So then you have to become alive unto God again or born of the spirit again, which is where we get the word born again. Now, Adam and Eve were alive unto God like we are today. I don't you understand that. Out of the whole Old Testament, the only two human beings that ever knew what it was like to be born again, but they weren't born again because they hadn't been born a second time. So they were born the first time. But the only people until Jesus that knew what it was like to be in connection with God the Father was Adam and Eve. But they lost it. Then they couldn't get it back till the second Adam, Jesus, showed up and, re- and, and restored it, which we in the New Testament have enjoyed the benefits of it. But on the Old Testament did. The only way they got to God was because they believed Jesus would come. It was credited to them for righteousness on credit because they weren't righteous before God because animal blood only covered it, didn't remove. Adam and Eve in the garden as, as, bore, as spirit people, born of the spirit, alive unto God, had an instinct. Listen to me, I'm trying to help you. Your spirit... In you, there is an instinct that God has divinely imprinted on your spirit like he imprinted it on that bird. But the bird is just flying. We've got a much greater purpose. Adam and Eve had an imprint in their spirit, men. It was a divine instinct from God to love God, to please God, to seek God, to walk with God, to obey God, to live for God, to live with God, to live in dominion. 
And when they lost, when when their spirit man sinned, capped it, and they lost that connection, they lost the instinct. Which is why all the way through the Old Testament, they had to be taught and taught and taught and taught. And that's why God gave the law. Because you have to keep giving them rules. You've got to obey. Idiot, obey. Well, I don't want to. I want to kill that person. So they kill them. No. You've got, they don't know instinct. There's no divine instinct. What is the instinct? The fallen nature is the instinct. To sin, to cheat. That's why God gave 10 basics. And he gave them to Moses. And he says, now, I don't want you to cover that. And your neighbor's wife, I don't want you to kill. I don't want you to lie. I don't want you to see it. I don't want you to take my name in vain. Because the instinct is to do all those things. Now, the law comes to say, don't do those things. But still, with the law, their instinct wants to do it. But the law keeps them kind of out of the gutter. Now, something changed. Jesus came, he connected us again. Now, Jenny, I get born again. My spirit becomes alive unto God like Adam and Eve's was. What happens when I got saved? My instinct changed. The divine imprint of God came into my spirit because I was alive like Adam and he put an instinct in me to want to love him, to want to please him, to want to walk with him, to want to walk in dominion and power and faith and glory. That's why if somebody says they're saved, but you don't see a change in their life, they had a mental acknowledgement, but nothing in here changed. And a mental acknowledgement, you'll still go to hell. Are you listening? I did all these things for you, Jesus. And he'll look at you and say, I didn't know you. Why? Mental salvation. He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Go into the eternal fires of hell. There's a lot of people that think they're saved mentally. Because they've acknowledged and they prayed a little silly prayer. I don't mean, Lord, you know my heart. I say silly, not that the prayer is silly, but they're, they're just a legalistic, religious way. Yeah. Say this prayer. Yeah. Lord, come into my heart. Save me. But nothing in their heart connected with their mouth. It was mental. And Dad Hagen said those are mental ascent salvations. And those people were not saved and they're going to hell. And some are convinced they are. And you know how, I'm not going to get into duty, but you should hear Randy talk about a curl. You give you a permanent curl. A lot of them, a demon spirit enters them when they say the prayer of salvation. Are you listening to me? Because I'm, I'm messing with you, but this is truth. They're not serious. They're not legitimate. They're not bona fide. They are doing it out of a religious obligation, either to get you off their back or to soothe their religious dirty conscience. And if they don't mean it, not every time, but often when they say that prayer mentally, but their heart is not agreeing, a demon spirit of religion will come into them. And now they start to look and act religious. And they've prayed the prayer and everybody thinks they're a Christian and they're not. There was a pastor, Brother Randy was preaching a conference. He got up to preach and God spoke to him and said, he is not born again. He's on his way to hell. And the man is preaching. And he said, what? And he said, he is demon possessed with a religious spirit. 
And, he's, and, then, and then, so the man came and passed Randy on the stage and the power of God coming out of Randy got that demon spirit agitated and he fell down and started foaming and manifesting demons on the stage in front of his congregation. But because he'd been teaching them out of the place of a religious spirit and they were deceived, the whole congregation thought he was operating in the glory. Even though he was demonized and manifesting demons. And Randy said, Lord, should I cast it out of him? And the Lord said, no, because he doesn't want it out of him. So we left him. Within a year, he was a flow-bone homosexual, lost his family, lost his church, lost everything, and then died prematurely. And I pray and hope that he repented to God and he got really saved. Because some people say a religious prayer. A religious spirit comes into them and they act like they're Christians, but they're not. And you know how you can tell? You say, well, how, how do we know? Let's look around. Maybe there's people here. No, no, no. There's no one here like that. You know, I know people looking at Greg. Stop looking at Greg. Don't look at Greg. Don't do that. I know I saw some people looking at you, Deanne. But no, that's not true. Do you know how you can tell? It's very easy to tell. What, don't listen to their words. Because religious spirit can influence people what to say. Watch actions. Especially when they're alone. I didn't say break into their houses and watch them or set up cameras to observe them or use binoculars. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But I'm saying if there is a true change, if the divine imprint and instinct of God has come into their spirit, God has branded their spirit, their spirit is alive unto God a second time. This is how you know if people are truly saved. Because that divine instinct is there, there is a desire to want to know God. There is a desire, even if it takes them a while to renew their mind, they want to stop cussing. They want to stop sleeping around. They want to honor. They want to pray. Even if they're still fleshly and it takes time to renew their thinking. It might take six months, but something in their heart wants it. Because when the divine instinct is in you, when you're truly born again, your spirit is alive unto God, there is something he puts in you. You become a magnet. He, you become the metal and he the magnet you are drawn to him that's how you know people are truly saved because something in their life shows that they're saved Jesus said the wind read it in John 3 you must be born again and the big PhD candidate double PhD Nicodemus he's smart he's smart and wealthy the rich leader who's got the letters behind his name what do you mean I'm supposed to go back into my mother I mean how dumb can you be it just shows you religious people have got no sense. No sense. And Jesus says, no, you don't go back into your mother's womb. I'm talking of the spirit. Then he says, you read it on your own. He says, the wind comes through and you can't see it, but it moves the leaves and the tree. Notice, you read that in John chapter three. Jesus equated your born again experience with the wind and the trees. What he's saying is, you can't see somebody get saved with this. But you can't see the wind either. But you can tell the wind has come because of the movement of the trees. And you can tell the spirit is alive unto God because of the attitude, the words, and the actions of the changed one. Jesus himself said, you're truly born again when you prove it by action. 
Not because you say a prayer, not because there's a religion. Now, you have to say a prayer, but I'm saying it can't be mental. It's got to be a heart connection with your mouth. Believe that Jesus is alive. Say he is my Lord. And inside your spirit, the sin cap is removed by the blood and you go like a laser right to heaven. And your spirit is connected back to the Father and an instinct, a divine instinct comes into you. It's actually always there. It's just dead because you're dead unto God. But when you connect to God, like when you connect a dead battery in a car, all the lights come on on the dash. When you're connected to God, that instinct comes to life. And what is that instinct, Jenny? That instinct is, I don't know, but I just, I want to please him. I, I love him. I'd like to walk with him if I could. See, Adam walked with them. Adam pleased them. Adam loved them. I want to fulfill his plan, not my ambition or what my mommy and daddy asked me to do. I want to fulfill his plan on this earth. See, Adam had a job. Keep that garden. He wanted to do the job. You'll have a desire for dominion because God put dominion in Adam and said, dominate everywhere you go. So that faith, that gift, that, that anointing of faith in you should say, I'm not going to be sick. I'm going I'm to clear the road. I've been given the dominion of God over people, not in a negative way. You don't understand what I'm saying, but over sin and flesh, over people that would try to hurt me, people that would try to make me sin. I have dominion over all that nonsense. You see, that is the divine imprint. Woo, glory. If God could give a bird an instinct to fly, He's given you something, my brother and sister, and it's far more about going from point A to point B. It's about knowing Him. So you say, why don't we all do this? I'm coming to the end now. This is very simple. This is not complicated. How do, why do we not do this? Because Adam and Eve, are you listening? They did not know what evil was. Evil existed because Lucifer already fell. But God cocooned them. They did not know what evil was. Now you say, but the knowledge of the tree of good and evil... People have said they didn't know what good was. Well, that's stupid. Of course they knew what good was because God is good. And they knew God. So if God is good and they knew God, they knew what good was. So why does it list good and evil? What God is showing is a comparison. The only way you can truly know what evil is is if you compare it to what is good. But if all you know is good, but you don't have anything to compare it to, you don't know what evil is. Adam and Eve did not know evil. When they lost their divine instinct and their spirit man died unto God. Remember the Bible says the day you eat of this, you will surely die. They didn't drop dead for 800 and something years. Their spirit man died. Not dead like it doesn't exist, dead unto God. Why did their spirit man die in their relationship with God? Why did that instinct, the lights went off on the dashboard? Why did it die? Because they yielded to that deception. And when, and when, that e- when, they, when, they, when they ate of whatever that thing was, and, and people get, get all weird like, well, it wasn't an apple. I didn't say it was an apple, but it was a fruit. The Bible is literal. It was a physical tree. Physical trees produce fruit. They don't produce vegetables. Vegetables come out of the ground. Fruit comes off trees. There was an actual physical tree and it produced some kind of physical fruit and it was a physical act 
to take that fruit and eat it. We don't know what kind of fruit, so don't worry about it. That doesn't matter. If it mattered, God would tell us in the Bible. He didn't tell us, so don't worry about it. I don't know where people came up with an apple. It could have just as easily been a peach. Don't eat the peach. Your life won't be peachy. Now listen, when they did that, when they took that thing, all of a sudden, an understanding of evil came into them. Now they knew what they didn't know before. All they knew was good. Now they know evil exists and God was protecting us from that knowledge. What does the Bible say in the New Testament? Be innocent of evil. That innocent doesn't mean you don't know what it's about. You know what it's about, but don't be innocent of it. Don't meditate on it. And be excellent at what is good, innocent of evil. So what happened was, uh, it's 11.57, I'm almost done. That instinct that they had to please God and all they knew was good, died. Now a knowledge of darkness, evil, torment, wickedness, horror, murder, rape. All of that came into them. They knew it. And God was trying to protect them. He wanted them not to know it. So, you know the Old Testament. Now Jesus comes, now in the New Testament, we're born again. So let me explain to you the difference is when my spirit got recreated and connected with God and that divine instinct that was in my spirit came alive. Do you understand? Am I like Adam and Eve before they sinned? Yes and no. I'm like them before they sinned in that my spirit is alive unto God. But I'm not like them from the perspective of I know what evil is. And they didn't. Just because I got saved doesn't mean I don't know what evil is. I know there's evil out there. I know there's wickedness. In the, and just because you get saved doesn't mean all of a sudden, oh, I don't know when anything's wrong. I just, uh, uh. Right. You get saved, but you still have a knowledge of evil. Right. Yes. Adam and Eve didn't. That's where we're different. But we're the same in that our spirit was alive unto God and theirs was as well. Now, hold on. Listen to me. When I got saved, my spirit became alive. The lights on the dash came on. Everything came on. The instinct came alive. But I'm still aware of evil. Are you with me? So, Jenny, listen. I've got an instinct to want to pray. I've got an instinct to want to please him, to love him, to walk with him, to walk in dominion, to not yield to sin, to not yield to the flesh. That is in me as a born again believer. But are you listening? I have a Achilles heel and so do you. Because my flesh existed before my spirit became alive, because I'm aware of evil like all of us are, My old man, Paul called it, my old man, my flesh, the way I thought before I got saved, what I did before I got saved, that desire of the flesh, which is evil, because it's enmity, the Bible says, with God. It's an enemy of God. So it's evil. That desire is still in me, even though the instinct and the spirit has become alive. Where is it? It's not in my spirit because my spirit is alive. That's sealed and pure. But that, that knowledge of evil is in my mind. It's in my flesh. My body wants to do things that God doesn't want. But my spirit has the divine instinct. But my mind fights my spirit. My flesh fights my spirit. Everything in you, soul and body, will fight your spirit. But listen, your spirit is king. 
Your spirit is not the slave. Your spirit is the king. Your mind is not the king. This is the king. This is the prince. And this, my body is the slave. It will obey my mind. And my mind is supposed to obey my spirit. So you say, what does this have to do with anything? If my instinct is to be perfect before God, but my knowledge of evil and my unrenewed mind and my flesh is warring against my spirit. How do I get the carnal part, the old man, the flesh, the mind, and the body to yield? How do I do that? Meditation. I'm speaking in multiple languages today. Meditation. 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 When you meditate on what God spoke... And you pray, especially in the Holy Ghost. What will happen is God's thoughts, which is his word, will start to change your thoughts. Your mind will stop fighting your spirit because your mind will start thinking in line with the divine imprint. Your flesh, you're so used to doing bad things, but you'll have strength to say no. And as you say, no, more strength comes. No, more strength comes. No to pornography. No to lying. No to cussing. No to thieving. No to being dishonest. No. And all of a sudden, because of the word. So we have the divine instinct. But we also have the knowledge of evil. We have our flesh fighting that instinct. So that's what every Christian is facing. If you're spiritual, your spirit is stronger. If you're not that spiritual, your mind and body is stronger. The only way to get your mind and body submitted so that your spirit rules. What is your spirit trying to do? Get you close to God. Have a desire to pray. Have a desire to walk with him. Have a desire to know him. Have a desire to be clothed in his glory. Have a desire to walk in dominion. Have a desire to enjoy what he's called you to do. Adam, it was a garden. You, it's whatever your career is. How do you get that spirit man, that flow, that instinct to be, to be dominant? It's fighting your mind. It's fighting your body. How do you get your mind and body in control? The Bible says crucify your flesh. But how do you do that? You get in the word. The more you meditate on the word, the more you'll start thinking different. The more your mind will start to yield, the more your body and flesh will start to be put under. And before you know it, and it takes time, but before you know it, some years pass, and now you look to yourself and you say, hmm, when I got saved, I still did a lot of bad things, but I knew I loved God. But now the word and prayer has changed this brain, changed mental processes. My body does not dictate like it used to. And what has happened, Jenny? My soul and my body have submitted themselves to my instinct in my spirit. And I want to know God. And now I actually know him because this stuff is not holding me back as much. I want to serve him. I want to walk into him. I want to love him. I want to please him. And I can do it more because this and this flesh is put under more. That's why we meditate. You have an instinct if you're truly saved to want God. But don't get, get so hard on yourself. There is a knowledge of evil and a flesh in you that does not want God. So you have to kill that thing. 
Your spirit wants to rule, but your mind and body fights it. You got you to put that in its place. How do you do that? The more you're in the word, the more you're thinking about the word, the more you mutter, the more you meditate, the more it becomes revealed to you, the more it becomes alive to you. The more you pray in the Holy Ghost and he starts revealing things and showing you and speaking to you, the more you go, yes, I think different. Yes, I act different. Yes, I yield to the divine instinct more. I want to know you. I want to please you. And I can actually do it now. Instead of just wanting it. Lots of Christians, Sandy, they want to please God. But they don't because they're not in the word to get their mind and body submitted. It's not just, that's why I tell people to get saved. It's not just about getting saved. Now that you're saved, you're alive unto God. But if you don't come, your divine instinct will always take third place. God wants it first. But you can't get it first if the word does not change the way you think. You get that by preaching. You get that by meditating on your own. You get that by praying on your own. The more, that's why people have to come to church so they can learn, hear the word, but learn what I'm saying so that they can go and do that privately at home. And over some time, they will see that instinct will take predominance. That divine spirit life will start to take take precedence. And all this stuff you're dealing with will fall, dissipate. It will dissipate. Because the power of the word has that power to do it. The power of prayer can change you in your thoughts. Your spirit doesn't need to be changed. Your mind needs to be changed. Your body needs to be changed. But your mind, more importantly, because your body will just do whatever your mind tells it. So your mind needs to be, and I'll quote before I close, do not be conformed to the world's way of thinking. But be transformed and completely metamorphosized like a, like a, like a caterpillar into a butterfly. How? By the renewing, Romans 12, 2, of your mind. Change the way you think and you'll change everything in your life. And your spirit will take predominance. And as we close, I said I'm closing and I mean it. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, because I never even got to read it and I need to read it. And it says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. That means you've got to talk about it. That means muttering, meditating. And you shall meditate, which means to mutter day and night. And you shall observe to do that you, may, that you basically may obey what it tells you to do. When you meditate and you obey, yeah. when, what, is that ha- what is the process? I'm meditating to change the way I think so that I can obey what God says. When I obey, my spirit is king. Yeah. When I don't obey, my soul is king. Yeah. But if I meditate, I can obey, which means I'm walking in the spirit. And then what happens? If you meditate and obey it, you will make your way prosperous. You don't need to go to prosperity seminars. You don't need to go to get rich quick schemes. That's the world's way. You don't need all that nonsense. He told you, I'll make you rich. I'll prosper you. I'll take care of you. I'll give you success. This is Joshua's. Put the other screen. This is Joshua's success. Notice the Bible. Joshua's secret success was meditating in that word. And in the New Testament, we've got another weapon that he didn't have, praying in the Holy Ghost. And as I meditate, and as I pray, and as I meditate, and as I pray, I will begin to obey God because my flesh, what fights my spirit, will be under. And my spirit man will be king. And that instinct that wants to know God and wants to please him and wants to love him will flow out of me. And I'll become a spiritual dominating. When I say dominating, I mean it in a positive sense. A man of dominion over sin, over demons, over sickness. My marriage will be sweet. My life will turn out good and successful. 
Not because I went to a seminar, because I meditated. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the power of the meditation on your word. It will change our minds and our bodies so that our spirit man can be king. So that the instinct in us to love you and to want to please you will be able to be walked out in fullness. Lord, help this congregation catch the importance. This is divine revelation this morning of how important it is, more than reading through the Bible, to take a verse that the Lord leads them to and to meditate on that verse, to chew the cud, to do over and over again until they extract revelation from that verse because you show them revelation, it quickens on the inside, faith comes and victory comes. But it's not about running through the Bible and a time frame, it's about meditating and meditation takes time. Lord, you never once told us anywhere in the Old or New Testament that we were to read your word through by a certain date. You did tell us to be led by the Spirit in what we read and to take time as we read it to meditate. And as we meditate, we will get a hundred times more benefit than if we speed read. So Lord, let this congregation slow down This is not a drive-through experience. This is a slow burn. This is a take a verse, take it for the day, maybe a verse every day, maybe the one verse for the whole week, but take a verse, take two, take three, but meditate. And Lord, let the Spirit of God cause it to break down and cause all the nutrients and revelation to come out of it. And we'll be better off for it. And our spirit will dominate. And that instinct in us to want to love and serve God, we'll be able to live it. Not just wish we could live it, but actually please Him. Actually walk in dominion. Actually walk with Him. Actually walk in the glory. Because we've dealt with our thoughts. And we've got to deal with our thoughts. We've got to meditate. Thank you, Father, that you've made a way through Jesus for that divine instinct, for that divine life to be there. Help us to meditate now and get deal with our soul realm so that we can have that divine instinct work unhindered in our life. We give you praise for it.